0: Hola, amigos, y bienvenidos al Robcast. (laughs) Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Robcast. This is episode 194. Can you believe it? Let's make another one, shall we? Uh, Oh, by the way, speaking of making more, uh, June 4 is my next Largo show. And uh, tickets for The Largo Show are largo-la.com. I got a whole new thing I've been cooking on. And then uh, I got some surprise special guests. And, uh, yeah, that's just uh, a good time waiting to happen. And then uh, I believe it's Seattle and Portland. I will be in your neck of the woods later this week for the Holy Shift Tour. And then uh, UK-Ireland is coming up in July. So England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales... Uh, All you good people, I am coming your way. So, there are things that are happening, but right now what's happening is this episode, and this episode is called, It Seemed Good. Or maybe, I should say it uh, closer to the spirit of it, which is, it seemed good. Uh, Or maybe you could say it like this, it seemed good. (laughs) Okay, so, uh, a while ago I had an idea for a Robcast episode, and... uh, What was interesting is the idea came from a line in the New Testament, in the Bible, and I've never heard anybody talk about this line. I've never heard anybody teach about it, preach about it, give a sermon on it, and I think it's a really, really, really significant line. I think it's really interesting and helpful and provocative and, uh, I don't know what the word is, comforting even. Um, but I was so interested in how I just never heard anybody talk about it, and I'd written it down, and I then I'd done all like the kind of the study that you do, and I'd worked up this whole sermon about this one line. And uh, then actually on Holy Shift Tour, I do this pre-show Q and A where people come early and just ask whatever they want, and I had tried out this riff a couple times, a little uh, like a short version of the line, and I noticed it had. Uh, it just, it worked to had like this resonance. Uh, it's like, you're, it's like, you're always, honestly, you're like, you're always riffing. You're always trying out bits. You're always, if you're me, you're always like looking to see what connects, what works. And if I say it this way, and if I tilt it that way, and if i kind of massage it like that, and if I give this call back, it's, it's like, you're endlessly working with stuff. But I noticed this one. I was like, Well, that's a good one. Uh, that's got some, that's got some heat. That's got some legs. So, uh, last week, well, like it would have been a week ago today, it was a Friday, I sat down to record this sermon that I was convinced was like, this thing, we're bringing the fire. <laughs> and I sat down and I, and I started recording it, and uh, right away it's like, yeah, this doesn't work, so I stop and I record. By the way, it always takes, I can't even tell you how many attempts to get a good an episode, uh, I usually have to start five or six, sometimes 10 times. I get like a minute in and I'll be like, yeah, nah. And then I'll start over and I'll get like 30 seconds in and be like, nah. Sometimes I'll get like five minutes in, 10 minutes into an episode. I'll be talking away and suddenly I'll be like, I'll think of something that I said like in the third minute and I'll be like, that's not good, nah. And I'll just hit stop and start over. Yeah. It's almost like I have to keep starting until... It's almost like you're trying to find a vein or a groove. It's like you have to just keep starting it. At least I do. It's like I have to keep taking wax at her to keep attempting it until it sounds like I'm just talking. Um, So anyway, it usually takes a bunch of attempts. But I uh, I tell you, a week ago Friday, that one... I mean, there were moments where I, I... a couple times I got like 17 minutes in and I was like, this just isn't, <laughs> it's like literally, I know I'm in trouble when I'm talking to you, like I'm recording. And then I have a second voice in my head that's analyzing what it's like. And that second voice was like, honestly, Rob, this is just, just isn't that good. <laughs> and it's never a dramatic voice. It's always, it's always like, it's like a, an accountant voice. It's just going, the numbers aren't there. you know what I mean it's just like here's the spreadsheet you can read it for yourself it's like this one I mean I'm into it I'm on like my fifth sixth seventh eighth attempt I'm 12 minutes in and that voice is just like it's almost like it was like the voice was saying Rob honestly you're a little bored right now (laughs) and I think it's well maybe it's because I had to give background so that it was like there was, I had this sense that I needed to give all sorts of background so that this one line would make sense. Uh... And so, but when I was giving the background, it just was like, do I need to give them? It almost felt like it was too much inside baseball. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like too much setup for the thing. So I had my like bouncing back and forth in my head is like, maybe this is just too much. Maybe people don't need this much background. Maybe, maybe (laughs) this idea just isn't as interesting as you think it is. So then I was like, well, it's a Friday. Maybe this is just a Friday energy problem because generally on Fridays later in the day, I just, I turn every, turn the computer off and I just shut it off. And you know what I mean? We hit full Sabbath mode. So I was like, well, maybe it's just like a Friday. Maybe Friday came early. So I'll just, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll record it Sunday. You know what I mean? Sunday, first day of the week sort of energy. So, so Sunday, uh, well, Sunday I wake up and I surf sunrise. So I'm like, you know what I'm saying? Like extra mojo, extra juice. We're cooking, we're buzzing, so then I come in after surfing and I start in again and it's just uh, <laughs> still no fire is one way to put it. It just isn't working. And I, uh, and I realize maybe, maybe this is a five-minute idea. Maybe this is a seven-minute thing and I've tried to turn it into a whatever, 45-minute thing. Maybe this is just a seven-minute riff that fits in something larger, and I assumed it was a whole episode. Um, So maybe that's the problem is I just keep trying it, but maybe it's just not like a full Robcast episode. Uh, But you don't know until you try it at some level, right? It's like you you don't really know until you hit record, and then you just start talking and working with it, and you're sort of finding out, what it is. Uh, this actually reminds me of a question that often comes up in the Something to Say workshops. Um, I've heard this question often, is somebody, they have some idea, sometimes they have a skill, and experience, they've gone through a particular kind of heartbreak, they have a particular burden or passion for a particular group of people, they have something that they just need to get out in the world, they have some. Um, and the question often is, the person will stay whatever it is they care about, whatever it is they're bringing to it. And then they generally have a question that's something along the lines of, now I could do this. I could start this. I could attempt it this way. I could work it out this way. Which one should I do? Um, and it's funny to me because my answer, I always have like a gut reaction, which is just when someone says, well, how do I know which one is the, is the one that will work? I always have like, you don't. <laughs> that's my, always my first sort of gut, you don't know. Um, obviously maybe you have, uh, a leaning one way, you have skills another way, talent another way, experience another way. And so you maybe should s- start there. But, uh, if you're looking for like the surefire guarantee about which one is the one that's going to catch fire, um, I'm not aware that there are those sorts of guarantees out there. Uh, my experience has been, you have to try it. You'll, the path is the teacher, uh, by the way, it's interesting when Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, that, that line often gets quoted, often gets yanked out of its context and quoted, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Um, and we, and and Westerners, we love, uh, I mean, we've been sort of steeped, um, we've been brined in a particular culture that that the mind often took precedence over everything else. But uh, the word there Jesus uses, you'll know the truth, Um He's not referring to like an intellectual, cognitive ascent, uh, or or apprehension or comprehension. Like, well, you'll just know. You know what I mean? You'll you'll get your intellectual furniture arranged properly. The word "know" there means firsthand experience. You'll know the truth, meaning you will have lived into it in such a way that you will have experienced it. So y- you you will have less questions because you. You will have walked the path and you will simply be able to look back and see where your steps were. Um, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, meaning you will have lived into it. And that's how you'll know. Uh, so I'm always interested in when people are like, well, which which path is, you know, which way should I go? Um, how can I know? How can I be guaranteed? Which direction is the the right direction? Which is the exact step I should take? Uh like, try one, and then you'll know all sorts of things. because That's kind of how it works. So, anyway, I, uh, I'm i then it's like by Sunday morning, and I'm on my whatever 15th attempt at this one episode, and it's just rub it. I'm giving all this background. By the way, general rule if you've used the, the word circumcision more than three times in one minute to try and explain something, um, and then you wonder what. <laughs> why you have doubts about its power and compelling nature (laughs) at some point i was just like well maybe i remember thinking oh maybe this is like a maybe this just isn't a, a full episode idea and so i should probably just let it go so i just hit stop on the recorder thing and uh It's like, apparently that's just never going to be, apparently that just doesn't work as a Robcast episode. Okay. It's like if you get too precious about it at any point, the thing that you're doing, the thing you're trying to do in the world, if you get too precious, if you cling too tightly to it, you're in trouble. It's like part of the art of it is to throw yourself into whatever it is that you're doing without clinging too tightly to it. And it's like some people realize, oh, this might not work, so they back off and they don't throw themselves into it. Other people throw themselves into it, but they also white-knuckle it. They're grabbing it so tightly, like, this thing has to work or I'm in trouble. Like, you notice on those uh, singing shows where the person's about to go out and sing for the judges, uh, and you know how they'll always say, like, this is my one chance, this is my one chance to honor my family and bring, bring respect to my city and validate my life. And you're like, okay, you're just asking for heartbreak when you cling to it that tightly. Or you think about being a parent. It's like part of the art of it is to give this kid your very best, but also hold it loosely. You, you hold them loosely Otherwise, you're going to suffocate them. You're, you have so much anxiety. Some kids, the, the reason why that kid's acting like that is because of their parents. They're just they're just publicly displaying their parents' anxieties about them. And the parents are like, I don't know if they're going to make it. I don't know. The, I mean, my kid, kid, you're like, wait, wait, wait. I think your kid's problem is you. <laughs> it's like, you got to throw yourself into it. But you also, in the process, have to let it go and hold it quite loosely. And if you don't Keep those polarities, that balance in play, you're in trouble. And so uh, it's like I'd <laughs> thrown myself into this one episode enough to realize okay, so apparently I got to let this one go because this just is, it's not my sermon, my precious sermon that I thought was going to be such homiletical fire, py- pyrotechnics. It's just, uh, maybe it's just not that good. It actually reminds me of this other idea. Uh, I have it, where is my, here, in my notebook. I had written down a while ago, I should do a a, a Robcast episode about disappointment. Um, And even saying the word disappointment, I even said it like with disappointment. (laughs) Because I became really interested in how uh, disappointment is like a, it's like a low-grade letdown. Like if I say betrayal, if I say revenge, if I say anger, if i say devastation those words have some stuff to them right those words have some crackle they have like a downed power line they've got some electricity but if i say disappointment right you know if you tell me like you know i was just disappointed you know it's just not everybody's like and <laughs> it's like disappointment it's like the it's just uh it's like this low grade it's like this low grade sadness And what I noticed is any one disappointment just isn't that big deal. And if you make a big deal to people about, you know what, I'm just real disappointed. Nobody cares. Nobody has, nobody, rarely do people have that much like, oh, really? Wow, that must be, it just sounds like first world problems. But what I kept observing is disappointment also has this death by a thousand paper cuts dimension to it. It's not that one disappointment it's months and years of little disappointments that can add up. It's like you find yourself uh, perhaps a bit cynical, beaten down, tired. You're flirting with despair. And it's not, you can't point to any one thing. And I, I wonder if it's just the cumulative effect of disappointment after disappointment. and no, and And you don't want to be that That person who's like, you know what? I'm just disappointed because everybody's like, get out of here, (laughs) right? But man, they add up to something massive. So I was really interested in this idea of how how would how do you talk about disappointment in a way that alerts us? And I was was making I literally was making lists. Think about this episode, making lists of my own disappointments, even in the past six months, several disappointments that I would never say um, as like a big deal because they're just like, just get over it, Rob. But then I start thinking about, man, they add up and they do something to your heart. So I've been thinking I should do an episode on disappointment. And so I've been thinking about this and reflecting on it and taking notes in my, in my trusting notebook. And then what I've noticed is that's pretty much all I got. Well, oh, I've also noticed that disappointments uh, are generally come from some sort of expectation or attachment. uh. I'm disappointed because I expected something else. And then I realized, oh, yeah, the problem isn't the thing. I mean, that was maybe a problem, but it was it was I had built up a whole world of expectation. And obviously, um, lots of people, lots of spiritual teachers for years have been teaching us about attachments, how much of our suffering comes from attachment. Uh, we, we get attached to a certain outcome, to a certain expectation, to a certain standard of how it's supposed to be, and then when it's not that... Um, we we experience all of this pain that essentially we created, um, and so oftentimes the response to, to disappointment is I probably should just shut off my heart. If I just didn't care this much, then I then I wouldn't go through this. But man, you shut off your heart and you shut off all sorts of things. So uh, I've been knocking around an episode on disappointment, and here's the thing: I just told you everything I got on it. It that thing just <laughs> that thing just. Not only is that not an episode, not only is that not, that's just a series of random observations about a topic. And, it, and by the way, if you said to your friend, like, dude, you got to listen to this episode on disappointment, your friend will be like, no, thanks. I think I'm going to wash the car <laughs> or make some potatoes. It just doesn't have a lot of you know stuff to it. And yet, uh, and, and yet, it just sort of has followed me around for a while. And I, I kept thinking about how maybe the, most helpful thing about disappointment is you just have to make room. This is what it means to be a human being. If you're alive in the world and you care, you're going to be disappointed. So just make room for it. It's like just non-judgmentally observe it. Oh, there's disappointment. Just make a room in the house for it. Just let it be what it is. Maybe that's the sum total of wisdom I have about this topic. (laughs) And the reason why I tell you that Is 25 years into this making sermons and talking about the spiritual depth of life, and on a regular basis, I still feel like I'm playing basketball in oven mitts. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like at some point, shouldn't this just be like effortless? At some point, shouldn't this all just add up to, and now I've got it nailed, and yet it's still... Sometimes you're just in the dark, you're trying to find a flashlight, you just bumped into a kick drum, <laughs> ouch, that lamp just hit me in the head, like, at some point, don't you kind of arrive, or no matter how long you've been doing this, and whatever it is that you've been doing, or is this just how it works? I was traveling recently with a friend of mine, a beloved, a uh, longtime friend of mine, and he... uh came with me out on tour and um, because sometimes when I go on tour, if my family isn't coming, then I think I'm going to have, I should have my friends come along and it's just so much more fun. It's like a rolling party. So I bring my, so one friend of mine comes out on tour and so we have just hours every day to talk. And my friend has, man, he has done so many interesting things, but he um, invests in businesses. So he owns chunks of all sorts of businesses and he has, owned all sorts of things, things you've heard of. He's owned chunks of products I'm sure that you have enjoyed. Um, He's just amazing. He's living an amazing life. He's in his mid-60s, and he currently owns a piece of a company that I love, and I actually own and use a bunch of their products. So the fact that this company who makes stuff that I just totally dig, my friend owns a chunk of them. I love it because I love hearing stories about it, but we we were walking along Lake Michigan the day of the Chicago tour stop, And he was telling me about this one company, this company that I love, and what a nightmare it's been. And he's like, he's trying to get out of owning a chunk of it, and he's involved with the owners of it, and he's trying to help them sort out the future of the company, and he's like, it looks, it seems so good. (laughs) He's like, I love the products, I love the idea, they were onto something really original, and he's like... Now it's just a nightmare. And then he said, and this he's been investing money in things and making, I don't know how many cajillions of dollars for decades. And then he said, I'm just hoping to get out without losing a ton. And I was like, wait, you're like a guru in this. You spot things and you get involved and then you sell them later. And you've been doing this for what, 40 years? Are you telling me that you might at the end of your deal with this particular company, you might lose money? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, this man is as wise and curious and informed as they get. And he's basically like, and I was like, so there's no guarantee. There's no, gu- even when you've been in the game this long, that you not you might even go into something that is making, because that company is making millions and millions of dollars, and yet... The way that it's being run, he's like, his problems with how it's being run, how it's being managed, the direction it's taking, how they're spending the money they're making, he's like, it's not, it's not, the future's not good. I was like, oh my word, you can be the best of the best of the best, and you're still learning, you're still discovering, and you're still regretting moves that you made. It seemed good, and now it's just a giant hairball, (laughs) it's just a mess. And I actually called him uh, this week to talk about that story because I was like, I want to tell that on the Robcast and about that. Yeah, yeah. By the way, which reminds me, the new issue of Rolling Stone, The Rock is on the cover. Are you familiar with The Rock? This fellow, Dwayne Johnson, actor, who apparently is the largest movie star in the world, Uh, more than $22 million a film. So anyway, Rolling Stone does a... cover story on him, and basically how this guy has got it figured out, right? Because that's how everybody talks about The Rock. Like, The Rock has got it figured out. But they do this really interesting thing in the article, and you can hear the magazine, actual magazine, not online, actual paper, came to my house. Um, he tells this story. The opening column in the story is about how uh, he is staying in a hotel suite at a hotel in Beverly Hills, And how he got back to his hotel room at 2 a.m. from a full day of work, and there was a strange sound in the hotel room. And so when the writer and Dwayne Johnson are leaving the hotel, he sees the manager who apologizes again. So Dwayne Johnson has to explain to the writer why the, um, the hotel manager was explaining was, was apologizing to him, and he basically says that when he got back at 2 a.m., there was a strange noise, and so he says, I shut the A.C. off. We called for earplugs. Um, the maintenance people came, and he says, finally, they had to move us at like 3 in the morning. It was a whole thing, is what he says. Okay, wait, wait, wait. The biggest movie star in the world has a strange noise in his suite in a hotel in Beverly Hills, And at three in the morning, they're having to relocate him. Okay, I know what that's like. Not a hotel suite in Beverly Hills, but I know what that sort of inconvenience is like. Anybody here ever had a middle-of-the-night experience in a hotel? Ever had to switch rooms? Ever had something wrong? Yeah. Now, I assume you're like me. And you're like, wait aren't there people who get a free pass from all this? Aren't there people who like, don't have to deal with these sort of inconveniences and frustrations? Or like my friend, the investor, aren't there people who at, at, reach some point of expertise and success and wealth where when they get involved in something, it just works and they don't have to extract themselves later just hoping that they don't lose a ton? I mean, doesn't The Rock, like, doesn't he kind of have it figured out? And yet, in an article about how he's the biggest movie star in the world and how he's figured it out, the first major story they tell is about one of those frustrating, totally inconvenient, middle-of-the-night hotel stories. And you're like, does The Rock not even get a pass? Now, obviously, there's absolutely nothing new about this insight, but I'm struck with how many people... I interact with, who in their head, they have in their head that those people over there, those people up there on that pedestal, those successful people there, somehow got a pass. And nobody does. Nobody does. Something seems good, and so you head in that direction. And you can do all of the diligence, you can do all the reconnaissance, you can do all the planning, you can... can, investigate on yelp every single review that's ever been written about this thing and you can still get burned you can still lose money you can still find yourself after working all day at 3 a.m having to move to a different room in the hotel are you with me on this yeah 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 Yeah, episode 194 of this podcast, and I'm still making it last week going, oh my word, I don't think this is a full Robcast. I think this idea that I was so fired up about that I think is a 45-minute idea, I think it's probably only like a seven-minute idea. Man, oh man, at some point, don't you just figure, apparently not. Apparently the joy is that you're endlessly figuring it out. Because if you nailed it, you'd be bored, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's actually the truth. And the truth is that everybody, even the experts, even the superstars, you weigh the evidence, you reflect on it, maybe even pray, you get some wisdom, you get some counsel, you think back on your own history, what's worked, what hasn't. And then at some point, you just take a step in a particular direction. And then you learn. Then you take another step and you find out, well, apparently that's not the right direction. And you figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's how it works. Which, of course, takes me back to that episode about that one line in the New Testament that I've never heard anybody talk about. Do you want me to give it to you? Should we talk about it? Let's do that, shall we? (laughs) The line is found in the book of Acts. And that whole episode that was going to be so brilliant was built... (laughs) was built around this one line. It's in the book of Acts chapter 15, and these apostles, the sort of founders of the Jesus movement, sort of first leaders of the Jesus movement, put it that way, they have to make this huge decision, and it's going to affect all sorts of people. It's going to have reverberations. Well, honestly, it's going to have reverberations for the next couple thousand years. Uh, And when they explain in a letter to people why they've made this particular decision about the entire future of the Jesus movement, the church, the way that they explain it is they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. (laughs) That's Book of Acts chapter 15. These apostles write and they say to these people about their decision, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's... How they this is a big moment, right? Right. People often talk about. Oh, you'll hear people say things like, "We just, you know, the church." If they're talking about like church things, the church, they just need to do it like they did it in the New Testament. We just need to get back to the early church. How did the How did the early church do it? It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's how they made decisions. That's the best they can do, because this uh, book of Acts is written by Luke and Luke has lots of material he could use, and obviously any biblical writer, and like any writer of a sacred text, they had lots and lots of stories, lots of poems, lots of lines, lots of history, lots of metaphor. They had lots of images they could have used. Of all the images, of all the content, you could have, Luke includes this. He wants you to know that when these first people who were shaping the Jesus movement for the next chunk of history, and we could say thousands of years, when they explained a major decision, the way they explained it is it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, immediately, if you're like me, you're like, well, I'm sure that that's just an English translation. And if you read the original language, the Greek, you'd see that it doesn't. it's, it's more firm, right? It's more sure, it's more absolute, it's more rock solid, concrete. But actually, in the Greek language, the word there for seemed uh, literally translates seemed, it also translates appear. <laughs> so it appeared good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, what's interesting about this line, think about it, is it's both humble. We acknowledge that we may be, it's almost like built into it, is we could be wrong here. So it's like humble and they're holding it loosely. And yet, it's also incredibly empowered. Like, a decision needs to be made here, so we're going to make it. We're actually going to act here. It's both humble and empowered. Now, if you lose either of these, well, I mean, think about how many cults or how much spiritual abuse happened because someone said, God told me, right? By the way, anybody charging around going, God told me, something within you just instantly has a reflexive sort of repulsion, right? Because you're like, uh, I don't know. God told me to be wary of people like you who say God told me, right? So, what's interesting about these is they have this, we need to act. We need to take the thing somewhere. Someone needs to do something here. But there's also this humble, seemed good to the Holy Spirit to us. like, Like, we could be wrong here. I also love that there's both... This tremendous empowered, we're making a decision here, but also when they say Holy Spirit, you, there's an openness, there's a, uh, a teachability to it, there's, uh, like you think about Holy Spirit, prayer, uh, a sense that there is a divine guidance, that there's more at play than just isolated human beings taking action. So, it's both, in, it's both very empowered and very, we've thought about this, we've discussed it, we've wrestled with it, we've debated it, we've argued it, we've thought long and hard about it, and yet there's also, uh, but we, it reflects a worldview, but we also believe that we're not alone in the universe. We don't believe the universe is a cold, dark, dead place. We believe that there's, you can have divine guidance, you can be led, if you're humble and quiet and listening you can sense it's like the whisper, the nudge, the wind, the fire. Uh, this there's some sense that the life is is taking us this way. Uh, brief, by the way, bit of backstory on this: uh, what had happened is Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is uh, a very Jewish center. So Jerusalem is uh, a very tribal Jewish city at this time in the first century. Well, it's got lots of things happening within it, but within this one tribe, this Jewish tribe, you had people who followed Torah, who eat kosher, who practice Sabbath, who know about Moses, who know about David, who have clean and unclean rules. Like These are people who are steeped in a particular tradition. But then what happens is the Jesus appearances and the Jesus movements begins to gain fire and the Jesus movement spreads way beyond this one tribe. And so it goes way beyond this Jewish tribe and it spreads all over the uh, Mediterranean basin and all of these people, this this Jesus way, this new way of ordering the world, not through coercive military violence, but through sacrificial love, uh, it catches on. And you think about uh, the world at that time. You had a very uh, striated hierarchical world. Everybody knew their place. You had Caesar all the way down. You had slaves and slave owners. You had men up here, women down here. Everybody knew their place. And this movement explodes in which at the center of it is in the Christ, in this new Jesus movement, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. This was a new way of ordering the world. So, while culture would rank people, and these people are worth more than these people, and these people are higher than these people, and these people lorded over these people, the Jesus movement was this, essentially in many ways, like this new idea. No, there's one tribe, there's one people, humans, and we're all equals. I mean, this is a radical idea. Some people argue that the Apostle Paul, this was the first coherent argument for the equality of gender in human history. Some people make that argument that this no wonder this idea caught on no wonder this movement had fire to it the no wonder it had momentum and it and it stuck it was powerful for people Is its this movement was saying no 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 there's you're humans you're all equal you're children you're of the divine you're sons and daughters there's, there's no ranking in this new movement in the christ uh, none of these distinctions matter like you think they do so of course this thing caught on but then you had this interesting thing happening is a lot of these people who are saying yes to this, joining this Jesus movement, they don't have, uh, they're not Jewish. So they don't have all of that tribal history. They don't know what eating kosher is. They've never read the book of Leviticus. They don't practice Sabbath. They don't know any of, they don't know Moses who? David, what, David Smith? Who's David? They don't know any of this. And so you can see what happens is the very tribal centric consciousness in Jerusalem starts hearing these reports and a number of these people, a number of them are like, well, here's the deal. If they want to be part of the Jesus movement, they got to become Jewish like us. And the name, the, the, the sticking point was really, then all the men need to be circumcised because that's how you belong to this tribe. And then you have another group that come along and say, within this group, that say, no, no, we shouldn't. Why would we make it difficult? Why would we add that? And so this becomes like a major, major major struggle by the way side note 2018 in this new reality they find themselves in in this changing landscape the one group responds by doubling down on tribal narrowness and the other group responds with this big open buoyant embrace of that which has previously been unfamiliar to them Come on, are you with me on this? So what's interesting is this is a new challenge. This is a new phenomenon. And the one group responds with, nope, with a rigid, narrow, they have to become like us. And this other group says, no. In fact, these apostles, uh, one of them even says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for these Gentiles, which basically means everybody who's not Jewish, who are turning to God. So the one group says, no, why would we make it difficult? Let's stretch our arms open even wider. Let's be even more inviting. In fact, when they then utter this line, so the line, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to us, is they basically agree, okay, We're not going to expect these people to become Jewish like us. Let's just come up with, there's a couple basic things we should ask of all these new folks. We should, and then they say, they have just these three things, avoid sexual immorality, abstain from food polluted by idols, and from the meat of strangled animals, which talk about some inside baseball. We'll get to that later someday. But they essentially say, here's three things we'd love it if you'd avoid, but otherwise, welcome to the family. And so when they write, they say, they send a letter to all of them. They say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you. With anything beyond the following requirements. Now, think about this for a minute. For these good Jews who've been part of this tribe, for them, all of these marks of their Jewishness were like primary identity markers. So, Keeping the law, observing the Torah, first five books of the Bible, eating kosher, the clean and unclean, going to the temple, observing Sabbath, these were primary markers of identity for them. This is how we know who we are. And now, what these people are saying is, we're not going to put those identity markers on you. And yet, we're going to treat you as a full equal. So, think about your own story. Think about your own path. You know something new is happening when what once defined you, what was once a primary marker of identity, you realize is not coming with you into the next chapter of your life. Now, some things obviously carry through from season to season to season. But remember when you needed that title? Remember that? Remember when you needed everybody to know that you were with that person? Remember when wearing that uniform like propped up your ego and helped you know who you were? That's all fine. And then remember that moment when you realized that you no longer needed that. It's like that person had that job and that jobs kind of defined them. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you're like, everybody knows me as whatever, the vice president, assistant manager, council president. And then something happens, there's a disruption, things change, and you no longer need that primary identity marker. Yeah, and so you can see what's happened in this early movement, is this early movement, this early Jesus movement, in many ways is is writ large, essentially what we go through as individuals. Is it's going through this change. And the question is, will it narrow and restrict or will it open up and include? And these first Jesus movement people are like, okay, we're going the inclusion, we're going to opening up. All these people uh, who are new to the thing, we would never want to burden. They literally use the word burden about all of these cultures and uh, all of these practices of their culture. And it doesn't say anything. It's not denigrating any of those rites and rituals. They're beautiful. And yet, the word they use is, we would never want to burden you with that. So what they had grown up with as the fundamental way they orient themselves, when they describe it to others, they say, we would never want to burden you with that. Seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Imagine if every... Spiritual community everywhere, every decision that was ever made had to be run through this grid. (laughs) Seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Imagine the built-in humility that would have occurred, which essentially says, hey, we could be off here, we'll know. Oh, by the way, if you are off, you'll know. You'll know. Every one of you who you're facing some decision or you have some sense of a leap or a risk or you're in some... uh, You're in some situation that demands that you take action and you're like, man, there's so many different options here. This is such an ambiguous hairball of options. Here's the thing. If you take a step and it's not the step into life, into wholeness, into healing, into reconciliation and all that, you'll know, you'll know, you'll know. See, this goes back to it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The acknowledgement of spirit spirit leading, guiding, sustaining, activating, catalyzing is the belief that you are not all alone in the universe, but there is source, there is God, there is love, there is guidance. And so, this goes back to what kind of universe you believe you're living in. And when you begin with, if I'm off, uh, I'll know. It's why I like thinking about those psalms, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. Essentially, Earlier cosmologies believed the whole thing was enchanted, it was interrelated, that the divine was present in all of creation and could shout at you, could whisper, could nudge, could send a breeze your way at any time. Do you see why this is so huge? Is You're living in a modern world that's been so steeped in reductionism, it's just parts, that many people, they weren't ever taught a more integrated, a more mysterious a more holistic view of the universe, which I would argue comes from a a deep-seated trust in the divine. Yeah, you act, go, do stuff, try stuff, jump, leap, make decisions, be fully empowered, and in that walk in the humility of, I'm looking for guidance here, and I'll know, you'll know. You'll know if you're off. (laughs) Because <laughs> there won't be green lights. You take a step in that direction, you're like, wow, that apparently isn't the direction to head in. So, when we take this line, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It raises all sorts of questions about what kind of universe is this. Are you all alone? It's just you trying to figure it out. And if you make a mess of things, it's all on you. Or are are we in some deeply mysterious way partners with the divine yeah heschel said this that we take part in the ongoing creation of the world and that we're here to repair and restore the world and god is looking for partners (laughs) yes so then when you move with it you just have this belief that yeah go try it make something of it do something with it you got all this energy you got, you've built up some sort of wisdom, skill, talent, something. you got something here. You're some sort of gift to us. So, you act and just couch the whole thing, especially if you have a partner, or you have business partners, you have a life partner, you have kids, whatever. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Do you see how much lighter you're now holding it? But you're also in. You're committed. you got skin in the game. You're doing something. You're not a spectator. You're in it. You're in the crucible, you're in the arena, but you're also holding it with this lightness. Yeah. People talk about what their definition of success is. I sometimes think that, well, the first, to me, the people are successful, generally people who just kept going and they paid attention and they were open and they just kept going and they paid attention and they just kept going. Because if you're off, you'll know it. So that was that one line it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, especially those of you, you're facing some decision. You're like, oh my word, this is make or break. This is gonna have huge repercussions. I don't know if I make, a, if I admit, don't, if I make the wrong decision, this is going if you find yourself paralyzed with the decisions you have to make all the time because you're a human being living in the world, try this mantra. I, do I guarantee, do I promise you? How should I say that? I am deeply convicted, that if you start thinking of things in these terms, so you do. You pray, write out all of your worst fears about it. Ask people you you respect. Think about your own history. Seek out wisdom. Do all that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Do all that. That's part of the spirit. Spirit leads you in all sorts of ways. Listen to your intuition. Sit in silence and listen to what is deepest within you. I'm telling you. You add. You begin with this as a sort of mantra mantra. When you are making decisions, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's it's like a release valve for anxiety. Because now you can make the decision, and if I'm off, yeah, yeah. I never claimed that I had the whole thing nailed. I never claimed this was airtight. I just claimed that I had done the work of discerning, and this is where it seemed good to head. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So, what kind of universe is this? Is this the kind of world where you can try an episode about one line from the New Testament that you've never heard anybody talk about, and it doesn't work? And so, you have to set it down and walk away, and you come back two days later, and you try again, and you try so many attempts that you're into double-digit attempts to try to make this episode work on this one obscure line, and finally, you realize it might be a seven-minute idea, not a 45-minute idea, and so you literally set it down, and then a couple of days later, you're reflecting on that, and you think, what if I did an episode about how that episode didn't work? And what if I just exposed all the moving parts and just talked about the entire process of discovering that it didn't work because it seemed good on the front end and how we can just relax and go for it and jump in because if we're off, we'll know. And you might have to just let it go, but then you let it go and a couple days later you think, maybe I should do an episode about how it didn't work. And is there a chance that if I did a whole episode about how that episode didn't work, that episode would work? (laughs) Are we living in a universe where that happens?